There's great entrepreneurs out there that have created brands that have done that. We did it the opposite way, which is, this is a great product. How do we bring this to market? Let's like take the square peg and shave it into a circle and then put it into the circle hole. Like let's, let's jam it in there and figure out a way to get this damn product to the market and also scale it. And that's what was so like fucking hard about it was like, it was four years of figuring it out. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. Today, we dive deep into hat number four, the hat of the entrepreneur, as I interview my guest, Alex Bayer, the mastermind behind Genius Juice, the world's first all-organic coconut smoothie. Come on board the Entrepreneurial Express as we go raw and organic into Alex's journey from an insurance salesman at Affleck to Genius Juice founder, where he rose the ranks in retail to almost losing it all to finally rising the fame as one of Shark Tank's most beloved beverage products. Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban didn't get it wrong. Alex is the real deal entrepreneur learning his way towards ultimate success. Let's dive into the seven hats and hear the story told by the genius man himself. Alex, welcome to the seven hats. Thanks, Yuval. Really, really pumped to be here, man. This is a great show. Uh, Thank you so much. So as you know, in the seven hats podcast, we don't kid our listeners into thinking everything is sunshine and unicorns. In this podcast, we expose the truth of what it's really like to be an entrepreneur. So we're going to pull back the curtain and show not only the successes, but the struggles and even the failures. And today, I am super excited because we go back many years now. We actually met when we were both starting our companies, Promo Mash and Genius Juice. I believe we met during an investor speed dating event in Santa Monica. Yeah, I think it was called Founders Meet Funders. I met you. It was like a patio near a hotel. That's where I met you. It was a little dirty. I felt like I needed to take a shower after the event. Uh, But we had big dreams and aspirations. And here we are six years later having a conversation on the seven hats. Six years in, Genius Juice is still one of my favorite products of all time. So I'm really, really excited to delve into your journey, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. So I'd like to know if you were destined to be an entrepreneur. When did you get that bug? Since I was a kid. I mean, I, uh, I can't say that I always hated authority or anything like that, but I would rather not have someone tell me what to do or looking over my shoulder at all times. I like to collaborate and partner up. And uh, I just always loved to like manage my own time have that freedom. Even in college, it's really funny. I, um, very quick story. My first year in college, uh, I was kind of a semi-rebel, which 
doesn't sound like me, but my undertone was rebellious. You know, I'm not, I'm not the guy setting things on fire. I'm the guy going on a forum or somewhere posting on the internet being rebellious. And I started selling uh, pagers and cell phones with an unknown company in college. And everyone made fun of me. They're like, who are you going to sell pagers to? Either drug dealers or doctors. Uh, there might be some drug dealers on campus, but there's definitely no doctors here on campus in college. From that early age, you know, from like 18 years old or 19 when I when I went to college, um, even though people were making fun of me, it was actually really painful because I was trying to go off on my own and just like start something. And I was recruiting people and people in the dorms would be like, hey, there's Alex, the scam artist, or there's Alex selling pagers, avoid him. And it was actually really, I don't know if I can say the F word, but it's fucking painful. So like, cause you go off on your own, you, you, you open yourself up. And then people just push you down. So that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. You know, hopefully I'm having the last laugh here. So I heard you, you're, you're an introvert. I would hardly believe it, but I heard you're an introvert. How did you go from introvert to rapper hyphen entrepreneur who's everywhere mingling with the best of them? What happened? Yeah. You know, even from an early age, uh, as you said, I was a huge introvert. Didn't have a ton of friends, but I wasn't a loner. You know, I was kind of like right in the middle. And uh, even as a child, you know, uh, when I would, I, I would never want to go out. I would never want to be around a lot of people. I had, uh, you know, massive anxiety, like social anxiety. And I still have an element of that today, which I've obviously worked on really well. Um, and I've put myself closer and closer to the fire, right? To, you know, face those challenges, right? By putting myself right in it and talking with people. And for the most part, I've overcome it. And I feel a lot better being with people now than when I was, you know, seven years old, eight years old. So it's just, it's something that I've always had since I was a kid being really entrepreneurial, but introverted. And it took a long time, took 15, 20 years to begin to even learn how to overcome that. And it was all about just putting myself in uncomfortable situations and pushing myself closer and closer to the fire to turn from coal into a diamond, right? Um, not saying I'm a diamond yet, but I'm getting closer to that. Yeah. And, and I think the most introverted people are also the most creative because there's a lot of introspection, a lot of thinking, a lot of just being meticulous and thinking through things. And that's who I am. By being able to learn how to be extroverted, I learned how to better share my gift with the world. Um, creativity, what I love, my passion, inspiring other people. And so it's been, it's been like, a blessing and also a lot of hard work for me to come out of my shell. It took so many years and a lot of fighting to do that. But the other side feels so gratifying to connect with people, love people, feel emotions, and also share my true emotions and be vulnerable with people. And, and that's what I love to do. I want to be vulnerable in a really powerful way, right? Because I think vulnerability is seen as weakness. Vulnerability to me is a power when you share it with others. Vulnerability is absolute strength. You can listen to Brene Brown. Vulnerability is, is a really great character trait to have. The term in quotes, this is genius, were the words that started it all, right? It's kind of the same for my skincare line back around exactly the same time period when my wife uttered the words, holy shit, we have to put our name on this. So tell us the story behind this is genius. I'm sure I said, holy shit, within the same sentence. Holy shit, this is genius. I just leave it out for all the PG-rated podcasts, you know? So, you know, I, I mean, essentially, th th this is genius. I've said the story again, and you know, over and over, and, and a lot of my interviews, I'll keep it short. 
you know, I just discovered this product and I knew it was really a great concept of blending the water and the meat from the coconut together. I just was looking for something clean and simple and tasty. You really feel the benefits. I mean, I just went for probably why I'm sweating a little bit right now. Uh, I just went for, I did run errands. And also uh, I, I put in my schedule as much as I can every day, if I can to run 10 miles, like that's my goal, 10 miles a day. And so I just ran, I think I ran nine miles because I wanted to get back in time for this interview, but I make that a mandate so that I feel good and I'm setting goals and I drink a genius juice. You know, I powered it with some fruit and hemp seeds and protein, but the base was genius and I, I don't even feel winded. It's like, it gave me a ton of energy. So I'm like living proof that this product does work and it's beneficial and it powers you. And it has the sustenance from the coconut meat to fill you and satiate you and give you that, give you that energy. So I holistically believe in the product, which is where things should start. I believe in the product, the raw material, the coconut and the benefits. And also I live the lifestyle where I love to exercise. I love to run. I love to eat clean. These are all things that I implement in my diet. And so genius is a big part of that. So that's why I love it. And when I talk about it, it's very easy because I'm passionate about it. Passion is so important. So before we get to the actual company and how you created it and, and that story, that roller coaster ride, let's get to a couple of insights that I want to get from you in regards to two things. Number one, let's talk about mindset. What mindset do you need to become an entrepreneur? So if you went back six years when you started Genius Juice and you're looking back from today, what is the mindset that you think is required to do what you just did over the past six years? I mean, the first mindset is, uh, for me, is just never giving up. And that failure is really not an option. Just persistence. I mean, a lot of people know me for persistence. We've come back from the dead a few times with this company. You know the stories, you know, being out of stock, out of money, no product on the shelf, going down to zero stores, you know, from 500 down to zero back to 4,000. And from no money to being in debt to coming back and having enough money in the bank to really grow the company and hire people, give back to the economy and get people on board as part of our dream, right? To build this company. So persistence, I think that mentality of like, no, this, I believe in myself. I believe in the company. I believe in the product. This is going to succeed. And having that mentality when entering into every conversation, every buyer meeting, every investor meeting, every podcast like this, every interaction, you know, what I've learned is that you can't fake it. You know, it's fake it till you make it to me is like bullshit. Like can't fucking fake it. Like either you, either you love or you don't love it you know, and you got to be all in on it. So it, it, as long as it's coming from the heart, people feel that you feel it in the conversation. You feel it right now when I'm talking, right. And are people listening? They feel that passion and it, it, you can't have it any other way. That's the mentality to be successful. And if you see any entrepreneur like the Elon Musk's of the world or the Richard Branson that just went to space and back, you feel it when he talks, you feel it in his body language and his face that like this was a dream of his and he finally fulfilled it. And for me, this is like a dream come true, growing a company and having a great product. It's funny. My wife and I were watching the documentary of Pixar and Steve Jobs was, was speaking and some of the other co-founders. And I turned to my wife and I'm like, that passion and mindset is all there is. It's exactly what contributed to the success of Pixar. Without these people and their mindset, you would not see Pixar where it is today. And so that leads me 
from mindset to the why. Because why is so critical, right? Simon Sinek, I think you know who he is, says that people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So what is your why? I think the why is why are you buying other products that are inferior when ours is so much better for you? You know, like, <laughs> like it comes back to product quality. You know, we can talk about nonprofits. We can talk about organizations that we're teaming up with and giving money back. We can talk about the upcycling of the coconut, you know, where we use the entire coconut, the meat in the water. We, we upcycle the husk, which, get, which gets repurposed. You know, these are all things that are, to me, ancillary. I think the biggest thing that hits home is why should you buy this product and why should you consume it? And it's because it's fucking better. That's why. It's better for you. It's not going to make you sick. It's going to make you feel great. It's going to give you mental acuity and focus. It's going to give you energy for your body. It could be melodramatically saying life-changing if you drink this every single day and get off all these other products that are high sugar or that have additives or gums or emulsifiers or stevia and all these ingredients, natural flavors that are really not great for you, but these companies are marketing it as great. And that's what drives me literally every day. That's what drives me in buyer meetings for me to get the deal done. As I tell the buyer, I'm like, the reason to bring this in is because it's a better product. And not only it's better, it's going to add more value for the consumers. Plus, it's really tasty on top of all that. So that's our why is it came from my heart. I was tired of bad products on the market. I was tired feeling like crap after drinking a naked juice, unfortunately. We'll say the brand name, but 50 grams of sugar in one bottle, um, it's not that healthy. Our product is just better. And you should be choosing our product over theirs. The battle, though, as you know, in the retail world is to get people to notice it and try it. And that takes a lot of money to do that. It does. And we'll talk about that in a second. So really to reiterate, I know you for a long time. You're a great guy. You have a big heart. And really your why is you want everyone to consume the best products for their health because you're so into your health. You care so much about the ingredients that you put into your body that you really want others to purchase quality products and ingredients and not be lied to by the media machine out there that will try to convince you that Jamba Juice is a healthy product. Meanwhile, it has more sugar than Coke. Exactly. How do we dethrone these people? How do we dethrone companies that are producing something that is hurting people more than helping people? That is against my quote unquote religion. Food is meant to be healing. Food is meant to be functional. That's the way that it was intended from the beginning. And now it's been taken to this direction of it tastes really good, right? So you should drink this and it looks really good. That doesn't cut it for me. It's got to it's gotta taste good for sure to get people to want to drink it over and over, right? Uh, but it also has to be functional and great for your body and your mind. And that's what genius is all about. I love it. And so you shifted from raw material to ready to consume product. Tell us about the lessons that you've learned in order to create a product that's ready for consumption. I, I honestly did it the backwards way of what should have been done. Um, I should have been looking at, which, which I feel when I say the backwards way, it doesn't mean it's the wrong way. Okay. I want to specify that most people, unfortunately in this business, uh, they're like, what product can I make? Let's start with a cost. What product can I make under that cost? What product can I scale to billions of dollars? What's the easiest, most deliver, you know, what's the easiest format to make it, to scale it, make it for, uh, as least expensive as possible and widely distributed as much as possible. There's great entrepreneurs out there that have created brands that have done that. 
We did it the opposite way, which is this is a great product. How do we bring this to market? Let's like take the square peg and shave it into a circle and then put it into the circle hole. Like let's let's jam it in there and figure out a way to get this damn product to the market and also scale it. And that's what was so like fucking hard about it was like it was four years of figuring it out. Four years of going to different suppliers, co-packers to really land on the right partners to scale the product that we envisioned to go to the market to benefit people. We wanted the product first, and then we figured out all the details on production, supply chain, sourcing to make that happen. And, uh, you know, long story short, it took many years to do it. Uh, investors that have come in and investors that we're bringing in have asked, you know, why you're at you're, year seven, like, why is this taking so long? I'm like, well, the first four and a half or five years was learnings. And the, and the last two years was the scale because we figured it out and laid the foundation. I mean, I keep on referring back to it. The Tesla stock was at like $15 for like eight years, you know, <laughs> because Elon was figuring it out how to scale a great product. And finally, he made, he raised the money and he figured it out. Amazon was unprofitable for years and years and years until Jeff figured it out. So absolutely, I, I agree with that. Exactly. Some great things, you know, they're not built, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Absolutely. And it is so difficult. I mean, I think that the one thing, the truth about entrepreneurialism, because everybody just hides it. Not everybody speaks about it, honestly, right? You get a product concept in your mind. And then you have to make it a reality. And for you, it was even more difficult because you have to travel halfway around the world. You're speaking languages that you don't know how to speak. You're dealing with customs and with currency. I mean, all of the shit that you have to go through in delivering a product, a raw material, actually, that spoils. This is a food product. This, this product will spoil if, and I'm sure you have a lot of stories about spoilage, but that is so difficult. So tell us about the iteration. How did you figure out the final set of products to go to retail with? Well, you, uh, you referenced uh, Steve Jobs before and the Pixar story, which again, like, like you said, for anyone who has not seen it, please watch it. If you also haven't seen the movie The Founder with um, Michael Keaton, watch that one. It's, it's such an awesome movie. So, but what Steve Jobs says is like, I don't believe in focus groups, just execute. You know, if you ask people what they wanted uh, when there were horses, this is like Henry Ford, people would say, I just want faster horses. And Henry Ford's like, no, they, you know, they want cars. They just don't know that they want it yet. Uh, so I, I really follow the footsteps of all these great entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, you need to do some market research, right? You need to like maybe do some data research, you know, break into spins or IRI or Nielsen's and see where the trends are going. Go to Statista, what is going up, right? Like, you, you know, you don't want to release a soy product in this day and age. You know, you got to know that. It's pretty obvious that coconut is a well-sought-after product. People love coconut. Sales are still going up in all different ways and senses. It's been around a long time. It's a wonder food. It's great for you. There's been no really bad press about coconut. There's been small things about saturated fats and things like that, but nothing huge that's really derailed coconut. So I knew out the gate that coconut was the right raw material and the taste was there and the benefits were there. The funniest part about how we developed our products, you know, we developed uh, seven different flavors when we first started, which was a mistake. You know, we learned. It was my first time in food and beverage. We had a kale, a berry, a carrot, apple, which people said it tastes like baby food, the apple one. The final skew, our flavor that we were going to develop was the original. And originally, the original was supposed to be cut. It wasn't even supposed to be one of the flavors because we're like, who's going to like pure raw coconut meat and water blended? Is that that's strong? 
Uh, we should have flavors like berry and like to kind of hide that strong coconut taste. And it was like at the very last day, we're like, let's throw in the original. Let's see how it does. Original is 65% of our sales. So uh, sometimes you just have to put it out there and take a chance, right? Where the one that we were doubting the most ended up being the top seller. So I'm a big fan of put more out there and then slim it down to what people actually want. It does cost more money, but at least you do research. You do research by getting it by execution, by getting it into the market. And you figure out what people want and what people don't want, and then you slim it down. And the key thing that I'll mention too is that entrepreneurs need to be agile and pivot really quickly. So if, if you know something is not working, if there's that that fifth wheel skew that's performing like shit, even if you love it, even if you have it every morning, cut it out of the stores because it's not selling. And like for me, you know, I like the turmeric. I wasn't in love with it, but it used to be one of our skews. I, it was ginger, turmeric, black pepper, vanilla, and coconut. And I thought it was delicious, you know, and it just wasn't selling. So we cut it. You know, luckily I froze some, so I still have some. So you mean my baby is ugly? You want me to get rid of my baby? Is that what you're saying? That's it. You know, I mean, if you have five babies, one, one, one possibly could be ugly. (laughs) (laughs) One possibly could be ugly. Exactly. So would you do it again? Would you come up with, come out with seven flavors and narrow it down? Or if you had to do it over again, would you come out with one or two flavors and expand? I think the better way is to go right in the middle. I would come out with three. Coming out with one or two is dangerous because you don't have enough shelf presence, you know, and it could disappear unless you're like harmless harvest where you have 50 facings of one, one flavor, right? Like their coconut water, but that took people don't, don't, you know, have to remember that took tens of millions of dollars to, to like do that. So, you know, I like in the middle, like I do just, you know, I, I give credit where credit's due like Koya. I thought did a great job of execution where when they first started, they had vanilla, chocolate, and coconut almond, just those three. And they started from a small base and grew it out from there and learned what people wanted and then expanded skew by skew sustainably. My opinion, as far as beverage goes, start with three, don't go over six. When you start going over five or six, you start to dilute the other flavors. You can do extra lines and things like that, but in one line, like five to six is a good sweet spot. It's enough presence on the shelf, but you don't dilute all the, all the uh, flavors. You didn't change the number of SKUs until you were in retail and started seeing sales happen. Is that correct? That is correct. It was execution. And by learning, it's it's so hard to, to learn and get market data from just asking people because what I've learned in general about human psychology, people say one thing and then do something else. <laughs> people are saying like, it's so funny, you know, like I did some vendor assist demos and road shows. I was in Costco and I'm you know, I'm like, oh, why, why don't you want genius? Like, oh, it's too much sugar, you know, 15 grams. And I, I look in their cart and I see like a soda with like 60 grams of sugar. I'm like, and I don't say anything, but I'm like, that's kind of weird. People say one thing and do another. And so the best way to study consumer behavior is to have it on the shelf, let them make their decision, let them take action, study the data velocity, and then uh, make, make adjustments from there. So now you're in retail. I don't know why you went into retail. Your product says that you're a genius. Uh, and if that's true, uh, please explain how you ended up deciding to go into retail because retail, as every CPG entrepreneur knows, is extremely difficult. So how did you get initial distribution? Who was the initial sale to? Just a quick overview of getting into retail and what did you learn from that initial placement? 
I mean, uh, retail is kind of a double-edged sword. It can be brutal, like we're talking about. It's expensive. There's free fills. There's slotting fees. There's marketing. There's promotions. However, it brings tremendous exposure to the brand. You know, if you have a great partnership with a great retailer, you get awesome exposure. I'll get into my story of where we started, but I want to fast forward to where we are now before going to the past that we recently launched in Sprouts nationally about four months ago. They are the example of a great partner, like truthfully, like a really great partner. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm really impressed and blown away by the buyer, how much he's done, like plucking us out and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in the best locations and give you extra facings. He recently for a month put us in the secondary coolers across pretty much every store, all 400 stores nationwide. He gave us a, uh, a picture, basically a full-size banner print on the doors, hangers, and on the walls. Someone sent me a picture from an Orange County Sprouts where it was literally framed in wood right near the cooler. And he also did two sales. They did two sales in a row for us. uh, And they gave us extra facings. So like, you know, they also brought in exclusives for us as well. You know, they were the only retailer that brought it in and took a chance on us. Retail can be hard, but if you find the right partners that actually want to support you and help you grow, then it gets better. Uh, but there's always retailers out there that it's tough. You have to give a lot, pay a lot. You don't really get a lot out of it besides just being on a shelf. You lose a lot of money. So you have to be really judicious on uh, where you go. I'm a big fan of not going everywhere. Just go in the retailers that support you and love you back. Absolutely. So who was your first retailer? First one was, I think, major re- Well, smaller regional was Erwan for those that are not from SoCal. They're one of the leading kind of natural regional stores. Everyone wants to be in there. Uh, they're famous. You got the Kardashians going in there getting green juices. So we started there and then we went into Whole Foods after that, which is pretty common. You know, the pathway, we got in through a local buying program and we launched in all 55 locations of Whole Foods, Arizona, Nevada, and Southern California, San Diego. And then like others that we really love are Bristol Farms. I mean, they've always supported us and Lazy Acres, like shout out to Roger Achiga at Bristol, Michael Gregory at Lazy, Steve Nieto at Sprouts, Monica Coyle at Whole Foods. Great people. So now you're in thousands of stores, but in 2016, wasn't the case. You had six regions of Whole Foods. What happened? Pretty low period in your life, huh? It was uh, it was crushing. Uh, I literally almost had to, I, I knew I wouldn't walk away, but I felt like walking away. Like my brain was like, you got to walk away from this because this is too hard. And my heart's like, don't give up. You can do this. Like keep pushing, like something manifested. So in 2016, we unfortunately had to break away from our, from a co-packing relationship. And, you know, and because of that, we were not able to produce the product. And this type of product is not easy to make. You know, it's like real coconut water and meat. We have to bring it here. We have to blend it, bottle it. There's very few co-manufacturers that actually want to touch this kind of product. And our current partner gambled on us and it paid off for them. We've grown like probably 10x since we've started with them. So they believe in me and also believe in the product and like the product. But in 2016, that's where everything should hit the fan. No products. We are in six regions of Whole Foods. Honestly, we did get away with uh, my like with scrapes and scars, but we weren't like handicapped or paralyzed because we were in a small amount of stores in the bigger picture. We were in about 500, but we were in a lot of Whole Foods. We were in a lot of regional chains. So what happened was we lost all our distribution. And then one of our investors came to us, who's actually also 
one of our secondary suppliers for coconut. And all they were doing was sending coconut to us. That's all they were doing. And the owner called me. He heard all about it. And I told him what happened. And he was wondering why we're not making new orders. He's like, uh, Alex, I, I remember this conversation. I was uh, living in the same complex, so not where I am now. But uh, I remember where I was sitting. I remember the day, the time. And he said, Alex, you know, you have worked so hard and you lost the battle. You didn't lose the war, but you lost this battle. And I believe in you. I want to, I want to make it, I want to help you, but also I, I believe in you to the point where I know you can make it happen and I want to lift you up and help you. And I know this will pay off for both of us long-term. We can bottle it in Thailand. We can bottle it at our facility. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm like, you can bottle this product. I thought you were just, you know, shucking coconuts and sending it here. He's like, no, no, we have a bottling line now. We wanted to get in that business. So the, the CEO said, we can do it right away. We'll make line time for you. We want to get you back up and running. And over the course of six months, you know, we were off shelf. I contacted like all the buyers. I'm like, we're coming back. We're coming back. It's going to be the original. It's going to be, and with just one skew, just the original. We're going to start small, just one, one flavor. So I've never seen a bottle like this ever, like in any store. It's weird. It's like squat, but it's kind of tall. It was, a, it was like a mold I've never seen before. So it's like a see-through bottle and, and I remember traveling out to Thailand and seeing them fill it off the line. And I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe we have a second chance at bat. And I don't want to fuck this up ever. Like, this is a big chance here to make it right. Not to say I screwed it up the first time. It's just, it, this is a second opportunity, a second lease on life. And uh, they made it. Product was great. Came in, tasted fantastic. Tasted like even better being bottled out. It, it was like, straight off the tree. I was, I was so blown away. And what's also amazing is we kept about 80 to 90% of our accounts. We lost a couple of regions of Whole Foods, but we retained three of them. It was amazing. We got back about 400 stores. Buyers were like, we'll give it, you know, we love this product so much. We will bring it back in once it's ready again. Not many buyers will give you a second chance. So it shows. No, they, they won't. Yes. They won't give you a second chance. And I'll, I'll tell you this, your perseverance and your mindset, and that's why I asked the question in the beginning, your why and your mindset. So important because during that period, which probably lasted months, if not years, 2016, 2017, around that time period, most rational people would give up. If you don't absolutely love what you do, if you don't have the mindset of never giving up, of pushing forward like an ox, right? Just, just one foot in front of the other, many give up. That perseverance paid off. Years later, and again, even more perseverance, because now what you're famous for is Shark Tank. Millions and millions of people seen you rap on live national TV. Well, I'll tell you this. I jumped on my couch just like Tom Cruise did <laughs> with Oprah when I saw you on, on, on Shark Tank. I didn't know you were, you were, you were going to be on. So it took you five years four auditions. You speak about the experience on other podcasts and online. So if anybody wants to hear about that experience, we don't have time to really go too deep into it. But something that you've been vocal about, and I've been speaking with many brands over the years uh, that have been on Shark Tank because that's the business that we're in. We speak with brands all the time. Fortunately, you you had a deal. You got a deal with Mark and Barbara. And I know Mark is a client. They loved, I mean, they just absolutely, the one thing that really hit home is they all loved your product so much. They couldn't stop raving about it. So I'm assuming sales were really good post-show, but you shook hands, hugged. Then what happened? Well, uh, you know, a lot of Shark Tank 
alumni, people that showed up that was that were on the show, they never really say exactly what happened. They keep it hush-hush. I don't. It's okay to talk about generalities here. The deal fell through. We actually needed the money. I mean, it wasn't like we were going bankrupt, but like that would be really useful, having half a million dollars in our account when at that time we had about maybe 100000 in the bank. And 100000 seems like a lot, but it's not a lot in this business. That can go very quickly, especially when you're expanding and growing. So um, we could have really used that money. It would have 6 xed our, our, our cash flow. And we really, it's one of these things that it's frustrating because you go through the meetings, lawyers, you really are trying to make it, make it so that we can all make a deal. But you know, usually when you're in negotiations, you get a feeling in your stomach, you're like, this is not right for us. They're not bad people, but this is not right for us. And even if, you know, the money, like the shiny object looks so tempting, you grab the apple from the tree, you're going to get punished for it. Uh, or it's not going to work out for you. So we knew that it wasn't, it, it's the right deal for others. Uh, it just wasn't the right deal for us at the life cycle that we were at, momentum, enough sales, team, money in the bank. So uh, I, we tried to make it work and they said, this won't work. And uh, we said, okay, well, we can't, we can't meet you where you want to be. So unfortunately we have to part ways. And that was it. But the, the challenge with making deals on Shark Tank or, you know, making the real deal, you know, behind the scenes is they have so many different deals going on. So uh, they, you know, this is pretty common sense. They standardize everything. It's not like they're making a special deal for you. They're like, this is it. Take it or leave it. And uh, I would rather go with an investor that truly like I know they somewhat believe in me because, you know, they wouldn't have made an offer on the show like for sure. Like they love the product. They believe in me in some kind of way, but someone who's really deeply rooted into making genius juice happen, you know, an advisor investor that is with me every day, pick up my call every day, have meetings whenever I need them thinking about me, right? Like thinking about ways to help genius and help me as an entrepreneur. Those are the types of people I want on my team that are thinking about me and about the, uh, the brand. That's a true partner. So the deal didn't happen, which I believe is actually to your benefit, but the deal didn't happen, but it doesn't suck to have millions of people know who you are and order online. That must have been a huge spike. Tell me about that. Was that the case with you? Yeah. I mean, to me, it was huge. You know, some online businesses, it depends on what your revenue is, but we did about a little over a quarter million in online sales within I think two days. And I remember it aired on January 19th, 2020. So I had to fly out the next day. I was at, it was it was early morning to go to fancy food show on January twentieth. I can't say that I'm like oh I'm I'm bigger than what the Beatles say like I'm bigger than Jesus or whatever. When I was there at the fancy food show the day after we aired on Shark Tank, number one, my phone wouldn't stop buzzing. I was getting orders and orders and or I mean because it the show went great. People the the sharks love the product. I came across as genuine in myself emotions, passion, like everything that people want to see to feel inspired to try the product. When I showed up, people were high-fiving me, pointing at me, people I didn't even know. Hey, I saw you last night on Shark. You know, it was like an awesome experience because the day after probably the biggest uh, exposure I've personally ever had and the biggest media coverage we've ever had, I'm smack dab in the middle of one of the largest food shows in the country in San Francisco where all my people are at. And everybody knows you. And everyone knows me. So I felt a lot of love. Like, I'm just happy we got aired. I'm happy that we got the exposure. But I was also, there was a mixed emotion where um, I got a call when I was on the floor. 
and it was from my operations team. And they said, Alex, you know that you're totally out of product at the 3PL at distribution center. And they're telling me they want you to send like half a truck more of product. And I'm just like, you know, I don't have a lot of time right now, but just send whatever we have, like send, you know, keep product for retail, whatever we have left, just send it like, because this, we did 10 times more than we thought we were going to do, you know, cause it's a high, it's a high price product. So it was a great experience. The exposure was awesome. And then we actually aired two more times in the year. So it was the gift that kept on giving, you know, so the online side definitely got boosted because of the show, because of um, the pandemic, people ordering online. So super grateful for that. And guess what, Seven Hatters? Alex raised money. He raised a half a million and more with crowdfunding, right? Is that true? And maybe a couple of other investors that came about? Let's close out the retail experience with, with fundraising. Yeah, so we have raised nearly three and a half million in the last year and a half. So uh, some companies do that in a series A, you know, where they raise a big chunk. We weren't there yet as far as revenue and margin. So we knew that we had to get scrappy, talk with people, talk with friends, families, high net worth individuals, do a lot of networking. That's what I love to do. You know, our first round we did, um, we raised half a million online. I think, I think it was 476 on WeFunder. Shout out to WeFunder and Justin Renfro. And from there, we raised more capital from other investors outside of of a WeFunder. In the initial round, we did 1.2 million. And then in the second round of bridge round, which was uh, our 10 million round, 10 million valuation round, we did, uh, I think another one and a half, almost over 1 million. It was over 1 million. And then now in our third round, uh, which is our last bridge, uh, we've raised another, we're at 830,000 on Republic. And uh, we're also at a little under 400,000 raised outside of Republic as they're during this taping. It goes to show you that you don't always have to take the traditional route. You know, you don't always have to go to a big venture capital. I think they're important, but do what's right for your business. If you feel you can raise it online, raise it online. You know, if you feel you want to raise it from high net worth individuals, raise it from high net worth. Choose the path that's best for your company. And we felt it was the right move uh, to just go with people that, individually put in right road checks for us and really uh, believe in the company and want to see us succeed. And you got to hustle. I know we're short on time. Two more questions. What does success look like for you now versus when you first started? Did it change over time or does it, ha- does it hold the same meaning? Uh, it's, it's taken on somewhat of a, a new meaning for me. I'm still like success for me is still from a business point of view when I first started was let's just build this company like at all costs. Like, you know, I was, uh, I was, it was 2014. I was 32 years old, you know, at that time, you know, and I know as we get older, you start feeling more, (laughs) more mortality starts staring you somewhat in the face. Um, especially for friends that have kids, it's no longer about your friends. It's about their children. Right. And then we're planning a family and all that. So what changed for me is success is is multi-prong. It's like you want to be great in business, but you also got to feel really good and have your health. For too long, I was sacrificing my health. You know, I was not feeling good, uh, not because of what I was eating or whatever. It was just working too much, stressing too much, not sleeping enough, not exercising enough, and not being well-balanced. And I fight every day to, to, to get a balance. Is there a balance? I don't think so. Like, it, it, we, let's be realistic, everyone. Like, if you're a fucking entrepreneur, you're never going to be fully balanced. 
but you can fight for it. You can fight to make time for yourself, fight to spend more time with family. Uh, your, your family members are probably wondering where you're at half the time. Like, why, you know, why does he never call me? At least you can try to work it into your schedule to be more balanced, you know, in some kind of way. There's never a full balance uh, in this business. There isn't balance, but you have to strive to manage each one of your hats or else when you get there, when you get to some sort of destination, you're never going to enjoy it. You're never going to find fulfillment. And I think you would agree with that. There's just so much more to the fullness of what an entrepreneur is, not just the business side, right? Exactly. I mean, one one thing I'll mention, um, which I think is a really tragic example, you know, and I never really knew him personally, people like Greg Stellenpole. He died young to me. Like he was in his 50s, I think, or early 60s. I mean, I'm 38. That's only like 20 years away. You know, that's not that's not a long ways away. And I mean, he was an amazing entrepreneur and um, founded Odwalla, uh, which was one of the most successful juice companies of all time. He founded Califia Farms or Califia. And uh, he passed away about six months ago. Um, I don't know the story. I don't know why. But I think you could draw that perhaps working too hard and not being balanced and not taking care of your health enough could have played a part. So these are all things that I think about. I'm like, focus back on what's most important because I don't want to, if I'm successful financially, yet I don't have my health, I don't have fucking anything in my opinion. If I don't have my family, if I don't have my wife, you know, all these, all these great like loved ones and my health, it doesn't, to me, it's not worth it. I'd rather be poor and healthy. So Alex, last question. This is a big one. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I had to drop all the insignificant bullshit, small stuff in my life to be who I am today. I can't worry about small stuff. I can see small stuff. I can think about it for a few seconds or a few minutes, but I cannot hang on to that because that's ultimately going to drag me down. So not focusing on negativity, it's really hard. It's, we're human, right? Like when something negative happens, if someone comes up to you on the street and says, you suck, you know, like, you know, they point at you for maybe a 30 seconds, you'd be like, what's his problem? Like, you know, some people will take it personally. There's a, a book by Don Miguel Ruiz. You probably read it, The Four Agreements. Love the book. It's an amazing book. Uh, but he talks about one of the agreements is not taking things personally and not worrying about the small stuff. In other words, by dropping that kind of bullshit, I've been able to feel better, feel more vitality, get better energy. And by bringing that energy into every part of my day with people, they feel that they feel the positivity versus hanging on to the negativity. And by hanging on to negativity, you know, my Tony Robbins moment, it does nothing for you. It does nothing. It only brings you down and scares people away and gives people a bad vibe. And I'm all about positivity, having good vibes, like living life in that way and thinking, like thinking about what the possibilities are versus trying to fixate on what didn't go right. Let's focus on what's going right because many things are going right in my life. And uh, that's, there's plenty to be grateful about there. Alex, you know, 70% of entrepreneurs based on studies and surveys are on antidepressants and depressed. You know what? I tip my hat off to you for being such a stand-up guy who cares, who's a real true honest and successful entrepreneur. It doesn't matter that you didn't sell for a hundred million dollars or a billionaire or have 17 companies you know, under your belt. You are a true, true example of what an entrepreneur should strive for. And I really hope that the seven hatters took what you had to say to heart because God, I, I vibe with everything that you were, you were saying. So thank you so much. How can the seven hatters reach you? If they want to buy your product, if they're a 
retailer that wants to carry your product, if they want to invest in you, how do they get to you? Absolutely. And we'll make sure to post this, this Seven Hats podcast all over our Genius Juice LinkedIn page, my personal LinkedIn page. We're actually building a media section on our new website. So we'll make sure to do a great shout out for you on there because I think what you have here is very, very special, Yuval. Thank you. So I tip I tip my, my virtual hat to you as well. So I would say best way to reach me is alex at geniusjuice.com. Please put in the subject line, listen to you on Seven Hats. So I know like where it's coming from and, and who, how you found me. And then if you would like to invest, we have a crowdfunding platform, which is at 830,000. Uh, we're really looking to break a million on there. It's open for another, it's open until about late August. Uh, it's republic.co slash genius dash juice. That's how you can go on there. You invest, you can become an equity holder in genius juice, which is pretty cool. I love it. Alex, you're off to your 15 minutes of genius podcast yourself. You're a man of many talents. And again, thank you so much for coming on the seven hats. And I look forward to continuing our relationship and seeing you succeed in all your wildest dreams. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Thank you, Yuval. Appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you for all your support and bringing me on the show. Always. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex. Let's end for today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. I'm sure so many entrepreneurs can relate to Alex's journey towards success. His raw and honest portrayal of what it takes to succeed as an entrepreneur lifts the veil and exposes the real truth behind the ups and downs of birthing a product and taking it to market. Entrepreneurs by nature must be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as they begin their journey into birthing their business. Otherwise, they won't do it. As you listen to Alex's long five-year journey into product development, then the multi-year track getting into retail, then losing most of it as he faced insurmountable co-packing and manufacturing challenges, then facing the wrath of fundraising to get on Shark Tank after a five-year pursuit and four auditions that went nowhere. Then the highs of securing a deal with Barbara and Mark to only lose it months later. Alex never gave up. His resilience, grit, commitment, and capacity to get up every day and fight the good fight helped him rise from the dead into a multi-million dollar CPG rocket ship destined towards stardom. Entrepreneurs are the 1% crazy. We face challenges head on and find solutions to make the world a better place. So in closing... I'll quote my all-time favorite marketing campaign. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat off to you. And one final note, if you found this episode helpful, 
please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you got from it so we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. I'd also love for you to weigh in on this topic. Join the Seven Hats community on my website, the7hats.com, so we can connect off air.